Welcome to At the Bar, a spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Braceris with Independent Women's Law Center, here with my colleague, Inez Stepman. And Inez, you know, I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a patent on At the Bar now, on the, on the um, <laughs> title of the show, which I think is pretty cool because there are a lot of, you can imagine, lawyers that want to have shows called at the bar or drinking shows about at the bar, but we, we now have the trademark, not the patent, the trademark on it. Uh, uh, I guess you can trademark a pun. Um, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, well, so, today um, we're going to be talking about the Supreme court term that opened this past Monday on October 2nd. Um, and just covering a little bit of what's going on at the court. Yeah. So um, as many of you know, the Supreme Court begins each term on the first Monday of October. It's SCOTUS Day. Uh, this is actually mandated by law uh, going back to 1917. Uh, prior to World War II, the first day of court was ceremonial and included a visit to the White House and, and, uh, and a meeting with the president. But um, in the 1960s, the court began just opening oral arguments on the first day. And that became apparently regular practice in 1975. So um, after Chief Justice Roberts officially opened the 2023 term in the courtroom, the justices heard oral arguments in a criminal sentencing case, uh, one of more than 30 cases uh, the Supreme Court has picked up to hear this term, including cases on the Second Amendment, um, social media and regulating social media, the First Amendment, uh, the administrative state, and more. So that this is going to be a, a meaty docket. And of course, um, there will be other cases added to the docket uh, as the term progresses. That's right. And here to talk to us today about what we might expect from the Supreme Court this term is Anastasia Bowden. She is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, um, which is a relatively new position for her. Prior to that, she was a high-powered civil rights attorney with the Pacific Legal Center, or the Pacific Legal Foundation, sorry. Um, where she brought a lot of high impact cases uh, before that. Um, well, actually, while she was doing at the Pacific Legal Foundation, she started the podcast Dist, which in which she tells the stories behind infamous Supreme Court dissents. And her writing on law and liberty uh, has been featured in numerous publications, including the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and many other places. So thank you for being with us today, Anastasia. It's good to be back with you both. I'm glad you have, uh, that you are here with us today because um, one of the things the court is going to be looking at this term is a, a trio of administrative law cases um, that sort of challenge, you know, together, the three of them challenge the constitutionality of our federal bureaucracy. So before we get into the details of some of these cases, I'm wondering if you could just give us a brief overview of sort of the federal administrative state and why you and other libertarians are constitutionally skeptical of it. The case yeah. against the administrative state. So, so many that? reasons. There's no, not even enough time. <laughs> There's, everyone wants to talk about how bad it is, right? We're all talking over each other. Um, yeah, so many reasons. It's really become what many call our fourth branch. It's a branch unto itself, where it is a bunch of unelected and in many cases, very difficult to remove uh, bureaucrats. So they're unaccountable even to the president who are regulating everything from, you know, as we like to say on DIST, everything from gas stoves to Greek yogurt. They have immense power over our everyday lives. You know, the Greek yogurt you eat. And, uh, you know, that's that's way beyond Congress's view, let alone these bureaucrats that Congress has all too happily really given its authority to. You know, Congress is very they've been complicit in this. You know, they don't want to make they the sure hard have. decisions. Yeah. And so they they don't exercise control. They're they're very happy to just delegate away their power. But that has brought up a series of constitutional concerns, including, you know, the way that these bureaucracies are funded, the way that the president has now basically lost control to remove uh, bureaucrats who are not 
uh, enforcing the laws in ways which the president agrees with. Um, these bureaucracies have become judge, jury, and executioner. You know, they not only enforce the laws, they enforce laws in their own in-house proceedings before in-house judges. Um, and those judges, again, even sometimes they are uh, not removable. Uh, this violates our Seventh Amendment right to a civil jury trial. So there's just a whole slew of constitutional problems um, that really has created a system that upends our constitutional order and means that the nitty gritty details of our lives are being regulated by the people with the least political accountability in our entire system. Yeah, so let's let's get into some of the specifics here. As Jennifer mentioned, there's a trio of cases um, already before the court this term. Um, let's talk about the CFPB case, right? Consumer Finance Protection Bureau uh, against Community Financial Services Association of America, um, and this challenges the constitutionality of the CFPB, uh, the agency as a whole. So, what is the CFPB, um, and and why uh, is this agency different? Uh, in terms of its constitutional basis for from, I don't know, the Department of Education or, or any other uh, agency? Sure. So the CFPB is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It was, um, well, the problems here were arose after one of the financial crisis in recent years. And through the Dodd-Frank Act, they created this brand new bureau and gave it a bunch of authority over enforcing consumer protection statutes. But one thing in particular that's problematic about it is they were trying to make it independent. Um, and but in so doing, you know, in many ways, people would argue it's become too independent. It's a it's a a bureau with no real political accountability. And one of the ways that they made it independent was through its funding mechanism. So normally most uh, cabinets or bureaus or, you know, whatever <laughs> administrative creation there is out there, they are funded on an annual basis through appropriations by Congress. But Congress here did something different, which is it said that basically the CFPB itself gets to pick how much it gets each year. It just puts in a request to the Federal Reserve, which then will, you know, it will just give it however much money it's asked for up to a cap. But that cap is illusory because it's such a high cap that the CFPB has ne never actually um, come close to meeting it. So basically it just gets to, to pick its own funding. Um, and this Great. is in perpetuity. So that's yeah, that's one of the 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 that's the biggest problem that came up in this case was a challenge to its funding mechanism. Um, in particular, the details of the case are that the plaintiffs were challenging the payday lending uh, regulation, which prohibits lenders from seeking to recover funds, even though those that's been pre-authorized by the borrower. If the lender does it more than two consecutive times in a row and it's denied due to insufficient funds, CFPB said that the lender could no longer go after the borrower. And so uh, a lender said that, well, CFPB itself is really unconstitutional in the way that it is structured. And one of the reasons is because of this uh, funding mechanism. There was also in a previous term a challenge to the fact that it had a single director and that single director was only so Congress had limited the president's ability to remove the director that was struck down. Now, this is a subsequent challenge, yet another constitutional problem with CFPB because of its its funding. So the way you describe it, it's like I think to an to the average person, it sounds kind of crazy. Like, what do you mean the department or the, the bureau gets to decide how much money it's going to get? And they just march on over to the Federal Reserve and say, this is how much you should give us. And, and they just get that, right? Whereas everybody else has to um, be part of the appropriations process where Congress appropriates specific amounts to the department. Um, and that, of course, as you said, makes makes everyone you know accountable to the people. The people elect the representatives, the representatives appropriate the money. Um, it, it sounds like, in some ways, an easy case. Um, and yet, Noel Francisco, the former Solicitor General who was arguing the case, got quite a tongue lashing uh, from the more liberal justices on Tuesday. Sonia Sotomayor told him that she was at a total loss in trying to understand the argument. Um, why was she so confused? And why are liberal commentators constantly saying that a ruling for the plaintiffs here would bring on the next Great Depression? I've heard that right. a couple of times. 
Oh, of course, right? What about the children? That's what you hear a lot of times, yes. too. What about um, the children? The next Great Depression, get in the bread line now. Right. Well, um, I think uh, General Francisco had a hard time because while everyone agreed that the appropriation clause must have some limits, that Congress can't totally give away its power and its duty to um, make appropriations um, in a way that keeps those bureaucracies accountable to Congress. So, for example, everyone at oral argument, even the current Solicitor General, agreed that Congress couldn't just give a quadrillion dollars to the president and then say, hey, president, go and take however much money you want and use it to enforce the laws however you want, right? That's That would disrupt the separation of powers by, by giving away Congress's authority and its duty. But no one could really come up with a limit on exactly where Congress uh, Congress's appro appropriations power ends. And so the arguments that the that Noel Francisco had made here were one, this is a standing appropriation that's it's not time limited, it's perpetual. Um, it's basically allows the director of the CFPB to take however much money he or she wants because it's only subject to a really illusory limit. Um, three, it's using that money for core enforcement function, core enforcement functions. So it's a really dangerous um, power to give them discretion for. And then uh, unlike other agencies who usually get money that's based on market forces, this one just gets money, you know, however much money it wants from the Federal Reserve, which itself isn't determined by the market. So he had made these four arguments. And the problem was, you know, it was kind of like a multi-factored balancing test. And also uh, the current Solicitor General was able to eviscerate each one, one by one. I mean, one of the biggest problems was historically there have, in fact, been agencies that had standing appropriations um, and that were only subject to a cap. Now, he he says this one's different because the cap is so high um, that it's illusory. But I think the problem with that argument is, doesn't that just mean that if CFPB were to spend more and to get closer to the cap, then it really would be a cap. It wouldn't be illusory. So that wasn't really, you know, that didn't really work with the justices. Um, you know, and I think the other problem that I found really interesting was Justice Jackson said all of these limits that Noel Francisco had come up with are nowhere in the text of the Constitution. They're just kind of, you know, the, he's inferring them from the structure of the Constitution, right. um, separation of principles, separation of powers principles. But the word appropriations itself is pretty broad, pretty vague. And she's like, where are you getting all this from? And so it was kind of interesting to see that she was the textualist in this case. And then we had Noel Francisco be the sort of um, purposivist. But in any event, you know, I think it was there was no bright line. How if you had to sort of read the tea leaves from what you heard at oral argument, do you, how do you think this case will come down? I don't think it's going to go well. I think, you know, the only uh, two justices who were really on board with uh, Noel's theory were Justice Alito, um, maybe Justice Gorsuch at some points, although he didn't have patience when there was a lack of answers to other questions. So, you know, I, I think it's either going to be 8-1 or you might get a 9-0 against this challenge um, wow. with Justice Alito writing the opinion saying, hey, there might be cases where where uh, the appropriations process would violate the appropriations clause, but this just isn't it. Well, well, we'll have we'll have to bring you back when it comes down to see if it comes out the way you predict it will come out. Um, let's talk about another of the administrative law cases. This one's called Loper Bright versus Ramondo. Um, it involves a challenge by family-owned fisheries to a federal regulation that forces them not only do you have federal monitors on board when they go out, but to pay their salaries, um, which seems a little unjust. Um, but of course, this case isn't just about fisheries and federal monitors. This case actually provides the court an opportunity to revisit sort of the whole notion that judges should defer to agency interpretations um, and agency decisions. And it's really a challenge to the to the Chevron doctrine, which, you know, non-lawyers will say, what's that? Who cares? But it's basically um, the idea of of courts deferring to administrative agencies to uh, interpret these statutes. So what do you think um, 
will happen, you know, specifically in that case? And do you think the court will overrule Chevron? This is a really big case. Um, Chevron deference is a big deal. We see it really making a difference in the lower courts in, in terms of what the outcome can be um, when you are going up against the federal government. So what it is, is if a statute is ambiguous, the court will defer to an agency's interpretation of that statute even if there is an objectively better interpretation out there, even if the, uh, so long as it's reasonable. So so as long as the, the agencies come up with something reasonable, a court can ignore its own interpretation, which is objectively better in favor of the agency. It's putting its thumb on the scale um, in favor of the agency. And what's really interesting is most of these separation of powers uh, problems we've been talking about have to do with Congress giving away its authority. And in this case, it's really judges giving away their authority now. So now, now not only do these agencies have, you know, executive enforcement power without oversight by the president, not only do they really have Congress's power to sort of legislate and make new rules. Now here they are exercising the judicial power um, because they get to determine the interpretation of various statutes, including statutes that delineate their own authority. So they're becoming the judges of the scope of their own authority. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's really problematic. I mean, you can see that when um, Chevron deference is applied, that the outcome is far more successful for the federal government, right? I mean, just naturally, that's the way it's meant to be. It's it's tipping the scales. And um, I think the problem is, is that the, the justification was that supposedly these bureaucrats have better expertise, right? So, so we should, so judges should defer to them to interpret these statutes. But I think that's sort of been eviscerated in recent years when we've seen that really this, it's all just coming down to pure politics, whether that rather than exercising some sort of expertise, you'll see, you know, one um, agency under one administration come down with an interpretation after years of considering it, and then it will come out with one interpretation. And then the administration changes, new bureaucrats come in, and they immediately just flip it. So I think it's, it's not truthful to say that this is that they're exercising their expertise they're exercising pure bare knuckle politics you could say that um you know at least the bureaucrats at the department of education they may be biased politically one way or the other but supposedly maybe they have some experience in the field of education whereas for example members of congress may not now i don't i don't buy that argument um i've heard people on the left say, well, why should it be Congress making all these specific decisions? They don't have the expertise to, you know, go deep in the weeds on whatever, climate change, education, this and that. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But my response would be, it really doesn't matter if they are qualified as experts. That's their job, right? That's their <laughs> constitutional role is to pass laws. And whether or not we think that the people we elect are smart enough or well-trained enough in a certain field to make policy on, on a certain front really is sort of besides the point. They're the ones who are elected to do it. Well, yeah, that, that's just a fundamental objection, I think, um, that we led with, right, in this discussion about who has legitimacy to make these decisions and, and the fundamental um, accountability in the constitutional system. Um Anastasia, I want to ask you, though, like, how far does, because this case seems like so egregious in a way that it, it uh, provides an exit ramp for a, a Supreme Court that might not want to overturn Chevron. So, um, I mean, this is really blatant. And even the expertise argument in, in this, right, it's not, you could imagine a case with like fisheries about, you know, complex populations, and maybe you need some scientific expertise. This is literally taxation. Right. It's about right. who pays for who pays for the government monitors, the, the um, you know, the fishermen don't mind having they're not. It's not it's a problem, not of like the regulations themselves, but essentially and, and the, the fishermen do not object to having the government monitors on the right. boats, but they don't want to pay their salaries. So this is like a pure political question in a way and a pure legislative question. I mean, this is the most fundamental of the legislative powers, right? The power to tax um, only given to the House of Representatives, actually, to initiate these kinds of taxes. And yet here we have an agency that 
that requested more money multiple times didn't get it through the appropriations process, then basically says, well, why don't we just tax the fishermen for their own enforcement, right? Why don't we just get the money from these private sector people to do the thing that we want to do, um, even though nowhere in the statute does it say that. In fact, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there are multiple parts in the statute where it actually does give that authority in very specific cases like uh, Arctic exploration or some other like weird cases, but it's silent on all the other um like all, that they're not allowed to do it exactly in these kinds of instances. It doesn't say anything about that power, even though that statute explicitly grants that power in very limited circumstances. So I guess my question to you is, you know, what do you think the chances are is are that, that SCOTUS takes an off-ramp on this? Because it seems like this case, you could decide this under Chevron and just say this this does not make it past step one, right? This statute is not ambiguous, it, it is pretty clear about where this this additional power to essentially grab money from the fishermen exists. It's intentionally silent um, with regard to the circumstance in which this agency did it. Plus, there's this whole paper trail about this agency um, essentially doing it because they ran out of money and not, you know, as part of sort of reasonable enforcement or whatever. So uh I guess my question is, is this not a great case for overturning Chevron because the agency is operating so far outside of the bounds of the statute that you could conceivably keep Chevron and rule against the agency here? Yeah, we have seen the court in recent terms, rather than doing anything to overturn Chevron, it's just been uh, trying to sidestep it. So, for example, they'll do everything they can to wring meaning out of the text and to say that the statute's not ambiguous and therefore not to apply Chevron rather than considering its constitutionality or doing anything about it. Um, but I think one thing that's really interesting is that's led to uh, a distinction between how it's being applied at the Supreme Court and the lower courts. The Supreme Court hasn't applied Chevron hardly ever in years, right? But the lower courts are applying it all the time. And that's not just because the Supreme Court is just more hesitant than the lower courts. It's also because there's been gamesmanship by the government well, there, where they will argue Chevron, 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 all the way up through the appellate courts. And then when it gets to the Supreme Court, they abandon their Chevron argument. And so it means that, you know, there hasn't been as much of, of these issues getting to the Supreme Court. And even when it does, the, the Supreme Court will be out of step with the lower courts. And I think that's exactly why the Supreme Court um, can, should, and probably will actually make a determination here because there's really good studies, including, you know, we we did a study at Cato and put it in our amicus brief about just how out of step the lower courts are, and they really need a course correction. And at this point, you know, the Supreme Court's granted, sir, it's done all the briefings. It's it got one of the most amicus briefs I think I've ever seen in any Supreme Court case. It's really time to do that and to, to bring the lower courts into line with, with the Supreme Court and how it's been either applying um, Chevron or to get rid of Chevron altogether. Um, all right. So let's go to this case that I, I uh, totally uh, have no idea what's going on in this one. So I'm hoping you can enlighten me and, and all our listeners. So we have the Security Exchange Commission uh, against Jarkesy. Jarkesy. Um, so what is going on and why does this, this case have significant admin law implications? Yeah. So this is yet another case coming out of the Dodd-Frank Act um, because out of the Dodd-Frank Act came the, the Congress authorizing the SEC to not just go after regulated parties, you know, registered brokers and other people that are regulated by the SEC, but anyone, any member of the public um, is now subject to a, a potential investigation and um, enforcement action by the SEC. And so one of the first victims coming out of that was George Darkesy, who he had a hedge fund. It was geared towards um, higher risk, higher, more sophisticated borrowers. It lost some money during the one of the recessions. Um, and so SEC decided to investigate and to go after him, even though he didn't actually need SEC authority to, to have that hedge fund. He was under some exemption or whatever. But in any event, the SEC goes after him. And after seven long years, you know, it investigates him, it, it prosecutes him in-house in front of administrative law judges within the SEC. Um, he finally gets to go to a federal appellate court to appeal that ruling. 
Um, but the problem is, is not only do you have to wait until the SEC does its own in-house uh, enforcement action and, and adjudication to get to a federal court, even when you're there, once you get to federal court, courts usually under these statutes have very limited um, uh, appeal uh prerogative over you. They're limited in the issues that you can appeal and the facts that they can, can reconsider. And so uh, Jarkissi argues that the uh, this system of, of allowing the SEC to prosecute and to adjudicate everything in-house violates the Seventh Amendment's promise that you will get uh, a jury trial in certain civil actions. And, you know, this is important. It's not just some esoteric constitutional thing, because what you find quite naturally is that if you uh, go against the SEC in-house, you are going to have a much higher loss rate than if you go to a federal court that's far more independent um, than the administrative law judges in the SEC. So, to me, that's there's actually quite a few. There's a there's I think there's three different separation of powers issues within Jarkissi, but to me that's the most interesting um, because again we're seeing these agencies be judge, jury, executioner. Right. Yeah. So that's sort of the landscape of some of the administrative law cases that um, the court has thus far agreed to hear. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the First Amendment cases that involve big tech. Um, the courts agreed to hear a few of those. In the Net Choice case, um, a social media company is challenging laws in Texas and Florida that seek to limit the ability of platforms like Facebook and YouTube to moderate content. Um, and this is a fascinating issue to me for a number of reasons, but um, primarily because it's an issue that I think politically and legally uh, seems to split the conservative movement. Um, so where do you come down on this and tell us a little bit about what you think the arguments will look like in court? So as, as you were saying, these cases come out of Florida and Texas, which both passed laws limiting uh, social media companies' ability to moderate content. For example, in Florida, you can't you can't deplatform a political candidate for any reason. Um, you can't prioritize or deprioritize political posts or posts by journalists. Um, they, I think in both states, the it requires companies to give affirmative justifications if they deplatform someone. Um, there's some transparency measures with, you know, telling people why they've been deplatformed or telling people about rule changes. Um, and of course, it all came because of the perceived uh, uh, censorship of mainly conservative voices. Although I will note that I think it's really interesting that in California, um, X, or formerly known as Twitter, right, just brought a lawsuit against a California law, which also had a social media regulation bill because it actually wants social media companies to do more deplatforming. So, it, you know, the California, those legislators, uh, legislators are trying to harness government power to force uh, social media platforms to do the ex exact opposite of what uh, Florida and Texas are doing. And I think this illustrates exactly the danger and helps explain where I come down on it, which is that, you know, the First Amendment allows these companies to uh, moderate as they say, as they see fit. Um, as much as it's just moderation, it is also an expression of their values and uh, uh, their speech. And I think it's very dangerous when we allow government to to have power to dictate what they do, because then you're going to get, you know, you may like it in Florida, but you're not going to like it in California. Um, and either way, it's it's private property. It's private property and private speech. Um, and so so I think it should really be, you know, up to the to the platforms what they do. And I don't like the idea of saying, well, they're big. So so mm. because they're big, they can be regulated. Well, you know, big is ephemeral. At one point, MySpace, I remember as a kid, MySpace was big, right? You know, my, they used to say Microsoft was going to be the next thing. And all these things are in flux. And that's the beauty of the free market. And um, I don't think that the fact of bigness alone makes somebody subject to, to government regulation. Right. So these cases really come down to sort of whether these social media giants are more like a newspaper, right? The New York Times doesn't have to publish op-eds from Inez Statman if it doesn't want to, um, or anybody else, right? And nobody would Don't worry, them. they don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> they, should. they absolutely should. But, um, 
but they don't want to, and nobody's going to make them because they're a private company and they, you know, can publish what they want to publish. Right. That's the argument that, that these, you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever X would, would make. Um, but the flip side is, and that's what you were alluding to before when you were talking about whether they're so big is whether they are essentially a monopoly and to the point that they've become a public, well, two things, whether, whether they're kind of common carriers and also whether they are a public forum in the way that uh, like the public square would be, right? So this is where nowadays people don't march on down and get on a soapbox and and, um, you know, give speeches about stuff, although they still do that in Hyde Park in England. But for the most part in this country, you know, these debates all occur online. So has this become the public square? And are they monopolies to the point that that they're common carriers? And this is the only way you can uh, communicate uh, in, in this particular way. Um, I think that's really what it's going to come down to. And I'm not entirely sure where I come out on that, to be honest with you. Well, it's interesting. Now we can have the, the three views because I'm very much on the other side and Jennifer's in the middle. So we'll, we'll find out. But um, th- to me, the bigness is not the only issue, although it is an issue, right? But but these these are not companies with either natural or like traditional monopolies the way that we would think of them. So I, I agree with you, Anastasia, on that point. Um, to me, though, this is more about the spectrum from on, on two axes, right? One is expressive conduct or expressive speech versus something that looks a little further away. And this is what we kind of got into with the 303 creative case last quarter, right? And it's, it's, does this company look more like Jack the Baker, um, where there's a clear sort of expressive message? Um, and I think in 303 creative, it's sort of, it glossed over this question simply because the facts of the case were so obviously on one side of it, right? Not only do you have one person, um, and and uh, but she's doing something that's obviously creative and expressive, right? That the product that she was selling, wedding websites, right, are obviously sort of this creative um, function to it. So it was kind of easy to decide on that front. Although I would note that the lower court in that case tried to make the argument that she was a monopoly of one, right? right? It was like absurd argument. But in this case, it's not nearly as absurd, right? Um, in in the sense that th- these, it, it does come down to what Jennifer says, do they look more like a newspaper? Well, the additional complication with that is for the purposes of liability protection, right? Um, for defamation protection and everything else, the New York Times can be sued if they publish something that's defamatory, right? Um and there, we have a law, Section 230, that always gets bandied about that protects social media companies from this um, exactly because there's a recognition that this is sort of an open pub posting square, right? It's something closer to an open forum. And therefore, it's exactly not an expressive message from, let's say, Twitter or X itself, right? When somebody posts something that ends up being defamatory, you know, X is not responsible for that. So it it seems like these corporations kind of want it both ways. They want to not have an expressive message for the purpose of like being like the New York Times and publishing an op-ed, but they do want the First Amendment protections based on being uh, like basically saying that their algorithm um, and their their terms of service constitute a, a first amendment right. message they're speaking. So and- I will tell you that that years ago, when some of these issues first started percolating, and there was one of the first controversies about whether or not the Facebook algorithm was biased in suppressing conservative stories. I don't know if you remember, but but it was very bad publicity for Mark Zuckerberg, and so he collected. Um, he invited a collection of, you know, conservative commentators out to meet with him about this. And believe it or not, I was one of those people who got invited to this meeting. And there are about 25 people sitting around a table with with Mark Zuckerberg and Susan Sandberg, or I think that's her name. Um, and, you know, so it was it was, you know, the president of the Heritage Foundation and Tucker Carlson and Dana Perino and Glenn Beck and. And little old me, there I was. But um, but what was interesting is that I, 
specifically said to Zuckerberg, okay, this is a private company. If you want to suppress conservative voices, knock yourself out, but be honest about it. Like tell people we are a progressive platform. This is what we believe. This is what we're going to um, promote. And this is what we are going to censor or devalue or, or whatever in our algorithms. Um, and he, I was one of the only people who said that, by the way, all the other conservatives around the table were ironically demanding things like, quotas for the number of conservatives that Zuckerberg hired to, to create these algorithms and all sorts of things that I thought sounded very not conservative. But anyway, um, so but he responded to my argument by saying, no, 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 this I really want this to be an open platform. This is for everybody. It's not it's not my perspective. It's not the company's perspective. This is you know, freedom enhancing. This is this is for open for all. And he was very firm that he didn't want to um, make it be about his or the company's expressive rights. So, so fine. Then, if that's the case, if that's your position, then I, you know, I feel like they've boxed themselves into to the argument that they are a public forum because that's what he claimed he wanted it to be or that was yeah yeah i i see that and i think you know my response to that is like let's take 303 creative which was more clearly a first amendment case but what i think is interesting about that is that litigation has really been aimed at people where what they're doing is clearly speech because speech gets so much protection but in the courts. But in reality, I think most people who think that, uh, you know, in 303 Creative, she should have been able to, to serve who she wants through her speech, also believe that people should be able to serve who they want based on, you know, no matter their profession. Because in this country, we not only have freedom of speech, we have freedom of association, or we have freedom of property rights. You know, we have, we have freedom of conduct. So I think no matter how you you know, if we can get away from just calling it speech, I still think these people have a, a freedom to use their property as they please, even if it's not considered a First Amendment problem. It's some other kind of constitutional problem because their liberty is being infringed in the same way that there's this very famous California case, uh, Supreme Court case, Pruneyard, which said that shopping malls have to host other people protesting or holding up signs or soliciting money, they can't kick them out. Um, even though everyone would know it's not that shopping mall speech, it's they're just hosting the speech of other people. And the Supreme Court said that was a law forcing them to host that speech was um, okay. And conservatives for a long time have had said that's wrong. That's that shopping mall's property. They can kick people out if they want to or not. They shouldn't have to host that speech. But and the, I think by this, yeah, I think the argument carries over. Decided? Pardon me? Do you think Pruneyard was wrongly or rightly decided? I think it was wrong. I think I think wrong. that, you know, by the, the same way that I can invite people to my dinner table if I want, you know, a shopping mall can invite whatever speaker they want. And whether you consider it a First Amendment problem or, you know, a takings problem or a freedom of association problem, you know, all the same, it's it's to me a problem for liberty. So um, there are two other like sort of legal dimensions that like I could see this going in. And, and that's why I think these cases are for, are going to come up with increasing frequency because it is so much the shape of uh, sort of our modern regime. Um, and, and so I, I think this is like, I think it's going to be the work of decades for the court to figure out what the boundaries are on each side of, of all of these various dimensions. But the, the two other well, ones I want to bring up. I have to say the hilarious thing is, I mean, judges by, you know, their nature, especially at this level are older. Right. And, you know, I'm 56 and half of this tech stuff is completely lost on me. I mean, you know, you have justices there that are much older than that. And I it's just funny to me to see them try to grapple with this industry and this segment that that they are so clearly, I think most of them not fully understanding. So I, I, I think that's true, especially when you get to the question of whether or not this is a public forum. Um, although right. there are parallels even 
well before Pruneyard, right? Like um, there are parallels in in the company town cases, right? Where you really have this enclosed space that literally has a town square, right? Where everybody's living in like a mining town or something like that, right? So it's not that the legal issue here has come up before in a different context, but there are two other dimensions. So one is what I touched on briefly with the 303 case, but I think actually runs in to Citizens United. And that's how much a, like how, Equally, are we going to apply First Amendment, but any other kinds of rights to um, publicly traded corporations versus, and I think this runs through Hobby Lobby as well, right? And I, I, I think it's a legitimate question in a way, perhaps Anastasia doesn't, right? She thinks like um, that corporations are fully people. They're just groups of people and therefore they have all the same constitutional rights. I, I think it's a little bit more of a gradient in the sense that I think it's obvious in the 303 case where you have one person with a business that's clearly expressive and where like Hobby Lobby is somewhere in the middle because it's it's um, it was a, a privately held company, right? It wasn't publicly traded. But then you move to the corporate context where you're taking advantage of, of the corporate form in a certain way and you have like a board and and nobody actually, you know, there's no single person who determines the expression of, of the corporation, right? It's the, it, it, I think it's a more nebulous case. And I think that there will be a sort of tension within this conservative leaning court between people who stick with the full um, personhood of corporations that was established in, in Citizens United in a totally different context, right? And people who who maybe are a little bit more flexible about looking at the differences between that. Oh, and that... that um, Boston parade case, I think comes in yeah. as well. I can't remember the name, right? Like at what point does a group of yeah, people, at what point are a group of people expressing a common, like actual, you know, first amendment statement? And at what point is it just business? Um, because on the other end of that, and this is the second dimension I think is interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned freedom of association. Well, we've abridged freedom of association since 1964 in a very, very, um, you know, invasive way. And, and when we said, no, you don't actually get to choose who your customers are. There are certain ways in which we're going to force public accommodation um, to every customer. You can't, you can't say, I don't want to serve this customer because of their race, right? I can't say, I don't want to serve this customer because of their religion. Um, so we have this huge precedent uh, for abridging freedom of association and my most like sort of controversial idea that Jennifer has been urging me to write write up for some time is actually I think the the big tech space in terms of conservative censorship looks a little bit like the Green Book South before you know Heart of Atlanta and the right to travel right because it's 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 not the simple monopoly case I agree with you it's not a simple monopoly where like there's definitely there's you know MySpace is gone now you have Facebook and Twitter and um, and and uh, all the other and Instagram and Snapchat and blah 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 right TikTok now um, so you have all these different social media companies but for a variety of reasons they end up uh, refusing to serve the same batch of customers and if you add up their market share together it starts to look a little bit more like well it's fine for one hotel to not want to serve black people but when every hotel along Highway 10 um, for a stretch of 800 miles, refuses to serve the same customer. Well, there's no real way for the, the the free market mechanism there to really work because you know that your competitors are excluding all the same customers. And so none of you is getting a competitive advantage over the other. And you can still, because you have the same cultural commitments against one class of customers, you you can essentially count on all your competitors to exclude them as well, or at least let's say competitors adding up to 85% market share. Yeah. I mean, I guess my response to that is, well, I have a couple of responses, but you know, one that comes to mind is uh, that sounds well and good, except for when you start giving government this power, you may be very sorry in the future, right? Exactly because we have the Californias and who knows which way the culture will go that are going to harness it to make the corporations do something different to to bridge their rights to force some other type of censorship or, you know, to make speech go one way. So I think that's one problem. I think the other problem is, you know, in my view, and this is, this comes after being a civil rights a constitutional litigator, you know, um, I really think this change has to come from the culture. Um, and, and so often actually, you know, the law lags culture, right? And I think that's the right way that we have to go is by, convincing companies that it's not good business to to 
behave in this way to flee. You know, for all the people who complain, you still see them complaining right on Twitter, right? Or right on Facebook, all these places that they claim to hate. And I know it's because where else do, are we going to go at this point, but why not band together and try to uh, create a new platform to compete? And, and you see that happening with even amongst the liberals with Blue Sky or what have you. So, um, you know, I think to me, the the ultimate solution would come through the free market and through um, choosing not to do business with those people who you disagree with their business choices, rather than harnessing government power that could very easily be abused in the next case. So I guess where I would, I would agree with you more if we didn't already have, uh, essentially, if we were already operating in a freedom of association landscape. Um, but we aren't. And so what I'm seeing is a landscape where on certain traits, right? Uh, customers can be discriminated against even to the extent that you get like this 85, 90% market share, because in part, because a lot of these, these alternatives you're talking about cannot get off the ground because they, they have to go, they themselves have to go through a monopolistic run through with Apple, for example, or, or even something more basic like web hosting services, like Amazon web hosting services, like you knock this down to the, the pegs or the, the building blocks of the internet. And there are, it's not that they're not monopolies, but you do see a lot of like oligopoly type looking thing where there there's maybe two different competitors in the market, maybe three, um, but they all agree on who needs to be excluded from the Apple store. So you do run into that kind of oligarchic structure um, in, if you consider, so this is, this is the thing that I think is so interesting about these cases is, is, um, and I think it's 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 broadly applicable to a lot of the different challenges that we face today versus, let's say, 1983, right? Um, which is that you see that actually the the, the um, kind of collusion we used to think about straight antitrust, right? And I have no interest in picking up the antitrust law of Europe or or making it about you know without consumer harm, right? Um, but you you see the situation where they're not. A traditional monopoly because they're not colluding on business grounds. They're colluding with each other on cultural grounds, right? So like, that's why I do bring up the, the case of, of, um, you know, the green book South, right? Where you have essentially, it's not that all the hotels along highway 10 got together one day in a room and decided, you know what, we're going to lock out this class of customer. This is, we're all like in an agreement together, an economic agreement. That would be like traditional antitrust, situation, right? Instead, they could just rely on the fact that because they had certain cultural priors in, you know, eight or nine states alongside the highway, that they had certain cultural priors that they could rely without even talking to each other. They could rely on all the other businesses to make the same decision for non-business reasons, not for dollars and cents reasons, for cultural reasons. And it, it, it seems like we made a decision about how to deal with that. And maybe we want to reverse that decision. You know, maybe we, we want to get rid of the public accommodations. And, you know, if, if we get rid of public accommodations and civil rights law, well, then maybe fair is fair. And, and maybe we can allow uh, tech companies to do this too. But it seems to me that it's, there's an imbalance there. Like, um, and, and very few people, I know that, you know, libertarians, there are some libertarians who would like to get rid of public accommodations. But once we have, this precedent for this is how we broke that particular problem, right? It's public accommodations law is how we broke this problem um, in in the 1960s. Now, who's who's to say now that that like the right can't use the same solution, uh, you know? Because now people who are conservative are the class as a who are being censored by something that looks a lot like collusion between enough companies to have a monopolistic market share. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. I wonder, you know, if that is that how we broke the problem, you know, when people have those firmly held beliefs, even if you force them to uh, accommodate people who they wouldn't otherwise accommodate, you know, they'll find ways around that they'll they'll be very reluctant, they'll find ways to shut people out, they'll, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that was what what compelled um, us to break the problem, or at least, you know, if the problem wouldn't have broken itself just with cultural change and without this, that, that the public accommodations laws, but putting all that aside, like, I do just wonder to myself, whether this instrumentalness, you know, this idea that, well, um, because there's so, 
so many uh, of these companies that hold such a big market share that think this one way, you know, then we need to harness the power to get them to to go against their own wishes in order to accommodate conservative views. You know, I have to wonder, would we say the same thing? Would you say the same thing if that were true in a case like 303 Creative, where it was that, you know, the vast amount of people creating wedding websites would not cater to same-sex couples. I just, you know, I get very wary about the consistency here where people want to uh, force people to do what they want when it suits their own ends, but not the other side. And, you know, we've championed for so long, conservatives have, cha- not, not we, but the, the movement, I suppose, has championed for so long, um, you know, freedom of, of association and freedom of, of, being able to serve who you want, including in the 303 creative case. And I wonder if, if, if they would say that those freedoms no longer existed, if it were true that actually the Lori Smiths of the world were the majority with the huge market share. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, I, I find this particular set of issues so thorny. I think it'll be so interesting to watch what the court does with it. I, I, I don't, I, I go back and forth. I listen to Inez. I'm nodding away. I agree with Inez. I listen to Anastasia. Yes, I agree with that. And it's, you know, it's not that I haven't thought about this issue or or kind of studied it. It's, I really find it a tough nut to crack. So um, I don't know, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. We're certainly not going to solve the, the issue today. We'd love to have you back, though, when um, some of these cases are argued or decided to to see how they turned out. Well, it was great to be with you both, and thanks so much for- been thinking about publishing house. But the one one line that you're- Oops, sorry, everybody. That was my fault. (laughs) I heard a Supreme Court (laughs) argument filtering in there. I think that was from a prior episode. Yep. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. That's not our- our, uh, Interrupted this great uh, goodbye program, but uh, Anastasia uh, from Cato Institute, thank you so much for coming on, giving us this great Supreme Court preview, a great discussion of, of as Jennifer said, these these thorny issues. Um, so we'll, we hope, uh, listeners, you'll join us next time for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. And until then, we'll see you at the next At The Bar. Cheers.